0: Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 21, and we'll uh, look at that this morning, uh, verses 1 through 11. There's uh, the text printed in the bulletin on the next page uh, for you as well. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. <clears throat> it's a pretty typical um, Palm Sunday passage. We're just going to do what is expected of us for Palm Sunday and look at it. So it's, uh, it's going to be good. Let's. Um, pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help as we consider your word. Your word is clear in one sense. It is uh, unclear to us in other senses. It's uh, strange to us. It's um, hard for us to read it, hard for us to understand it in a lot of ways because of who we are, because of what's going on inside of our hearts and our minds. And so we pray that you would Clear things up for us that you would um, grant us your spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds so that we could read your word and benefit from it and uh, receive it with gladness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So they call this scene here, uh, which appears in all of the four gospels, they call it the triumphal entry. That's what they call it the triumphal entry. It's the final week of Jesus' life. As, uh, as we get to this point in each of the Gospels, they all slow down quite a bit and spend uh, quite a bit of time on the last week of his life in comparison with the, uh, the time spent on um, uh, the other years of his ministry. It's the final week of his life. It's leading up to the crucifixion. And it's the week of the annual Jewish feast of Passover, when the lambs were sacrificed in commemoration of the Exodus, when God delivered his people out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Um, And so Jesus was making the same pilgrimage as thousands of other celebrants. This was one of the annual feasts that everybody went to Jerusalem for, so there were uh, quite a few. I I, I can't remember, I think maybe even like 200,000 people were in and around the city of Jerusalem at at this time of year. He had just come from Jericho, which is um, maybe 18 miles away, Um, and he had met Zacchaeus there, and then as he was leaving Jericho, he met a man on the road who was blind, blind Bartimaeus. He restored Bartimaeus' sight, and now there's this crowd following him, and it includes Bartimaeus, the one who had yelled out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. So now, now he's part of this crowd. There's this huge crowd following him. And he traveled through Bethany, which was the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus, who in, in uh, John 11, he had raised from the dead. Um, and Mary, Lazarus' sister, these are brothers and sisters, right? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary had anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume there in Bethany. And, um, and this whole time... This whole trip, I mean really his whole ministry, but especially this time from Jericho through Bethany it's um, where he is now, he'd really been saying some very strange things, talking about how he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his own life as a ransom for many. Predicting his own death and his own resurrection, somewhat mysteriously, things that even... Uh, his closest disciples, whom he usually explained things to, uh, had them pretty much completely mystified. They didn't understand what was happening, the things that he was talking about. And now, he comes to Jerusalem, and it's the city of the kings of old. Right? Uh, he's approaching from the east, from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, I believe, is, is uh, higher than uh, Jerusalem, higher than the Temple Mount, And so he has a majestic view of the splendor of the city all laid out before him, particularly the great temple, which to the Jews was the the heart of the glory uh, of God among the kingdoms of men on earth. So the crowd that was with Jesus and the people uh, who were already in the city, these people had heard great things about Jesus. He was a big deal. Paul says later, these things didn't happen in a corner somewhere. This was all very public and large crowds in the whole city was stirred up. Uh, Many of them had heard him for for themselves or seen him uh, for themselves. And so the anticipation and and the excitement surrounding his arrival, it was great enough that really even his enemies were worried. The Gospels say uh, they started to really plan and worry because of the attention that he was getting. And Jesus even calls attention to the momentousness of this occasion as he's entering the city, by arranging, it's maybe kind of borderline miracle, uh, demonstration of divine knowledge, at least, if not divine power. Um, he arranges for his own transportation in the fulfillment of uh, this prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 9. And as he does so, he identifies himself as the Lord. Right? It's not just Christians hundreds of years after Jesus died who came up with the idea that he's the Lord, he identifies himself as the Lord. He says, when you go find that, that donkey and her colt, you say that the, the Lord has need of them, that's me. And so he identifies himself as the Lord and he confidently asserts his unique authority. If Somebody were coming up to you and gonna <clears throat> tell you, you know what, uh, the Lord needs your brand new automobile, uh, chances are you're probably not just gonna smile and hand over the keys. Right? Uh, he's confidently asserting his authority, and it, it, it works. His, his word has power. Um, and so uh, he's calling attention to something big happening here with this entry, the triumphal entry. And the people welcome him in a big way. It's a big, it's a, they welcome him in a way that's fit for a triumphant king. They uh, have their cloaks on that he's sitting on, or they spread them out. Uh, it's like rolling out the red carpet, right? Except with a, a note of personal submission. It's not just a red carpet; it's my cloak. <laughs> um, so I'm personally submitting myself to you and paving the way here for you to enter into the city. They they have the palms, which were uh, I think sort of a Jewish national symbol of victory, and um, and they were yelling Hosanna, shouting and singing Hosanna. Hail, deliverer, save us. It's a, it's a greeting, like hail, but it has that connotation of save us. Um, they're calling him the son of David. He's the descendant of the royal line that was thought to be broken. That, um, this is the city of the kings of old that he's entering into. Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is a king's welcome, right? This is a king's welcome. <clears throat> but something seems a bit off, especially when you know the rest of the story. You don't need to know much more of the story, really, but um, any, anyone who reads the Gospels nowadays knows the rest of the story. Um, within a few days, these very same people would all, down to the last soul, turn against him, abandon him, uh, reject him, betray him, mock, torture, and kill him with a violent and shameful death. As bad as it can get. From apparently as good as it gets, in terms of a welcome, to as bad as it gets in the space of a week. Um, As we uh, sing in the song, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. None, not one. And these were the people who had sung his praises. These were the people who had sat at his feet and learned from his great wisdom. These were the people who had been healed and restored at his very touch and his word. These were people who had eaten food miraculously provided by him. They had drunk wine miraculously provided by him. These were people who could not, even his enemies, could not deny his complete authority and his utter goodness. These were people who had heard him forgive them and cleaned his feet with their tears. These people fled from him. These people kept silent at the injustice of all of it. These, these people cried out give us Barabbas instead, the robber. It's the same people. So whether they did it explicitly or whether they did it implicitly by their silence or abandoning him, running away from him, the people who had welcomed Jesus at the triumphal entry, um, they would turn around and reject him later within that same week, that very week. So we read the account now of the triumphal entry And it sounds to us um, maybe something like the beginning of a horror movie. All appears to be right and nice. All appears to be going very well. But something seems off in their welcome. Now that we know the rest of the story, something seems off. Uh, Something's disturbing about maybe their empty smiles, their empty cheers and waves. And things are about to get really graphic. Um, Jesus is about to feel like he's, something like he's alone in a sea of zombies, (laughs) right? Uh, Like he's absolutely in a whole world gone dark. Alone. As if reality itself were rejecting him. And it was. All of this is true. It's worse than a horror movie. Why? How can this be? Where did things go wrong? How could such a major shift take place in the course of a week? How can this triumphal entry seem to be so good, and yet we know it's just empty? Uh, Luke says it out loud just before his account of the triumphal entry. He calls attention to it in Luke 19, verse 11. It says that when Jesus was coming near to Jerusalem, the people supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. When he was coming near to Jerusalem, everybody thought this means the kingdom is coming. So there's all this buildup, there's all this anticipation, all this enthusiasm and energy and support for Jesus, the political candidate. That's what it is. Large revolutionary crowds desperate for a regime change, ready to overthrow their Roman oppressors. That's the mindset of the people at the time. After all, what do we commemorate at Passover? Don't we remember deliverance from Egyptian oppression? Isn't it time again for another great deliverance, this time from the Roman Empire? Isn't it time to make Israel great again? And here comes the perfect leader for our rebellion. He's larger than life. He fits our expectations perfectly. He's exactly what we need. Isn't he? So at the triumphal entry, people welcomed Jesus according to their own expectations. That's what was happening. They had certain expectations for what a Messiah would be, what a Deliverer would be, and they welcomed him according to those, according to their own expectations. But when they got to know who he really was that he didn't just meet their expectations, that welcome turned to a severe rejection. Severe. Absolute rejection. That experience at some level. Welcoming Jesus according to our own preferences, our own presuppositions, our own expectations, and yet really getting to know him and then resisting him, that experience is universal to all of us at some level. I don't care who you are, that experience is is universal. All of us, down to the last soul, it was proven in that city on that day, hundreds of thousands of people down to the last soul, all of us welcome Jesus according to our expectations, but that welcome dries up when we discover what he's really like. And it dries up quick. And that's not a problem with him. That's a problem with us. We insist that he must be a great, wise, moral teacher. We insist that he must be out to make our lives easy and comfortable. Fulfill our dreams. We insist. And when he reveals himself to be much more than this, we refuse. Um, We'd like him to maybe improve our lives a little here and there. We'd like him to bring financial stability. Isn't that what we pray for? We'd like him to bring romantic fulfillment. We'd like him to give healing to our bodies. We'd like him to give us the best stuff. We'd like him to grant us the moral high ground. We'd like him to bring political and cultural victory. Save us, O Lord, from the circumstances that would prevent us from enjoying a nice, independent life. Hail one who delivers us from unpleasantness. Hail one who makes me greater than others. But our expectations about him are way too small, even if they're as big as the Roman Empire. Our expectations are way too small. And when he comes, revealing what kind of king he really is, it's too much for us. He rides into the ancient city, not on an armored war horse, which is maybe what they were hoping. But he he rides in weeping for them. On a slow, stupid, silly-looking animal that's really only fit for child's play. And he says... I am the king here, and I come to bring peace. But his lordship, and he says he's the king. What kind of king is he? His lordship is expressed in humble service. His lordship is expressed in deliberate self-sacrifice, absolute, total, complete self-sacrifice. Martin Luther called him the poor beggar king. The poor beggar king. This is not the kind of lordship that we would expect, and it's not the kind of lordship that we would vote for, but it's exactly the kind of lordship that we need. It's the kind of lordship that any truly sane person would welcome with fanfare, actually. Um, This king came wielding his almighty power, his authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, in order to march straight into the doom that awaited us. The king went into the deepest fractures of this broken world. This entire world is broken to its core. He went right into the deepest fractures of it, and not just to mend and heal everything that's wrong, but to make wrongness itself, to make brokenness a thing of distant memory eventually. This king came to bring cosmic restoration. Cosmic peace on a scale that is it it actually is impossible for us to fathom given eternity. We probably will not fathom it. We resist his lordship not just because it makes no sense to us leaves us scratching our heads which in a sense it does We resist this lordship because it makes perfect sense to us. It's just not what we wanted in the first place. It's not what we thought we needed. We don't want true glory, true divine glory to mean humility. That's not what we want glory to mean. We don't want true royalty to be expressed in humble service. We don't want true holiness to mean friendship to sinners. That just sounds uncomfortable and awkward and undignified. That doesn't sound good to us. We don't need just abject mercy, absolute forgiveness, complete renewal, and a sovereign monarch to top it off. We don't need that. We just need to be picked up, brushed off, polished off a bit, and put back up on that high shelf. That's what we need. Can't he just give us that? I'll welcome Jesus as long as he plays by my rules. and gives me what I think I need, my expectations. But that's not welcoming Jesus. That's not welcoming Jesus really. That's rejecting who he truly is. No one in Jerusalem had really welcomed the true Jesus. Nevertheless, he came anyway it really was the triumphal entry of the king. Because in spite of the fact that the crowd's welcome was wrongheaded, and that every single person in the history of humanity since then has been wrongheaded, and had certain expectations about Jesus, in spite of that, in spite of the fact that we all resist his kind of lordship, what he's really like when he reveals himself to us, the true king entered the city of his people for their sake, for our sake. He really went in so that through his rejection, actually, we might be welcome in his eternal city. In spite of everything, through Jesus Christ, God has welcomed you. And when you know that, then you become free, truly, to welcome Jesus. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways, and that's actually really good news for people like you. Might not feel like it, but it is. Um, let me read the quote at the beginning of the bulletin. There's from C.S. Lewis's book, uh, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. It's a little story of Narnia. Probably most of you are familiar with it. The children who interact with Aslan. Um, <clears throat> this is at the beginning of the story, really, where um, they don't quite know what to expect of him. They, They've got an image of him in their minds, and they discover themselves to be wrong. And uh, and they ask whether he's a man, because something seems strange about the beaver's description of him to this point. And, uh, And Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mr. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mr. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Like Aslan here, Jesus overthrows... All of our expectations of him, because like Aslan in Lewis's Narnia, he is unpredictable. He is greater than we are. He is uncontrollable. He's untamed, undomesticated. He's not safe, and it's not because he'll do you harm. He's not safe because he'll absolutely undo you with his love. That's what he came to do. That's the kind of king he is. He's the kind of king that even the angels are bewildered by. It's not just a feature of fallen humanity that we can't comprehend what kind of love this is, what kind of king this is, that we can't comprehend the depths of his goodness. Pure beings with capacities for understanding that are far beyond our own who live in the very presence of the holy God find Jesus full of stunning surprises and they wish they could know more. We need to be delivered from our presuppositions about him. And the good news is that's exactly the kind of deliverer that he is. Because he's made himself known. So welcome him. Hosanna in the highest. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be to us who you really are. Even though that's not who... Uh, we would naturally wish you to be. We pray that you would save us from the autonomous, independent life. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our own faulty understanding of you. Save us from our suspicion of you. Save us from the false gods that we've given ourselves to for minor comforts and the illusion of security and power and peace. We pray that you would save us from the overwhelming pressure of this world, to deny you in order to preserve our own lives. We pray that you would save us from the deceptions and temptations and accusations of the devil. We pray that you would save us from our utter self-love, by your great renewing love. We pray this for the sake of your kingdom and in your name. Amen.